welcome to the Art Grind Podcast. This is a podcast run by artists for artists, where we talk about what it means to be one. My name's Sophia Kayafis. I'm Marshall Jones. And we're here with our producer. Ton Miai. We're three artists living and working in New York City. And this is being recorded on the fly. In between our many jobs and creative endeavors, we use this podcast to ground us in a space where there are so many ways to lose yourself. So join us. We have real conversations with artists we admire on the art grind. And we are live. Hello, <laughs> listeners. Welcome to the Art Grind Podcast. Uh, my name is Sophia Kayafis. I'm Marshall Jones. And today we have the lovely Dina Brodsky joining us today. I'm making a guest appearance for the first, you know, first time this season. Put a bit of a gap for Dina. <laughs> it, it was my maternity leave. What are you talking That's about? Right. Yes. <laughs> but we, uh, we, all right. And we uh, are interviewing uh, Frederick Rosen. Thank you. Um, the famous, infamous watercolorist, Frederick so, Rosen. <laughs> thank you for inviting me here. It's a pleasure to, to meet you all and to see Dina again. And, and I'm a watercolor painter. I'm a cityscape painter, primarily, and have been living in New York my whole life, although I've painted Europe extensively, Paris, Rome, Amsterdam. My primary subject is New York City. It has been since I did my first watercolors in graduate school in 1979. Okay. So, yeah. Where was graduate school? Pratt. Oh, Pratt. Yeah. Nineteen seventy nine. Pratt. You teach at Pratt now, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, do you? I don't okay. teach watercolor. I teach draw foundation drawing, but uh, that's an amazing school. They when I I taught at Pratt Graduate School uh, for two years, maybe ten years ago, and they didn't put me in the painting department. They put me in the illustration department no. because they said the set of skills I have was much more applicable. To illustration students That's, and to painting students. Well, because the painting students yes. need, need, need to get de-skilled, right? Well, the painting students were, you know, throw, throwing balloons filled with oil paint at the wall at that point. So, But that, you're, you're touching on a really interesting distinction because it's like ateliers don't do that. But it is like art colleges, definitely the chops are in the illustration department. Absolutely. Yeah. My class was small. I think it was maxed at 12 people. And these kids could all draw. Yeah. And also, almost criminally, they were paying 40 grand a year to be there. Those schools get so My expensive. graduate degree in 1979 cost the two full-time years $6,600. Wow. That same degree now is 90000 So crazy. How, how do you, as an artist, recoup that? That's what I always think about kids spending that much money. It's like, how are you going to recoup that money uh well you know default is always an option <laughs> I mean, you know if you're not planning to buy a home anytime soon and you, so you don't mind your credit going to hell for 20 years you can always i mean i really do i feel sorry i I almost feel as sorry for the MFA graduates as I do for taxi cab drivers who bought medallions. Well, this is a really good kind of optimistic start to the podcast. <laughs> hey, so, um, oh, oh, by the way, uh, we should have mentioned that most people listening to this are probably MFA students. So, yeah. <laughs> Oops. I'm just, I'm just sad because I was about to buy my cab medallions. <laughs> <laughs> well, now you can get them for like, yeah, you can get it for a song, you know. 
Um, <laughs> but actually, but, be, uh, let's let's go back in your life a little bit before we get to uh, you being a Pratt in 1979. Uh, what are the beginnings of, of Rick Brosen? Um, like, well, like, how did you grow up? I grew up on 78th and Riverside and in a nice building. But, you know, back then, the Upper West Side was a, a really mixed bag. I went to public school. I went to PS 87, went to junior high school, 44. And in those days, um, you know, it's really interesting that I personally was never aware of racial prejudice until I was college age. Huh. And that's because when I went to PS 87, kids were Spanish, black, Chinese, and, uh, and white. Mm -hmm. And they were my friends. Yeah. And we all mixed. And then I played basketball uh, for, for many years. I played street ball. Okay. And so I was one of the only white kids out there. So it was not until the educational stratas started working in place. Suddenly in college, there are, there are less of a mixed crowd. And then yeah. in graduate school, it was basically white. Yeah. You know, so mm -hmm. and then the friends I had made. So suddenly I became aware of really the economically based stratification that mm -hmm. happens. But I was lucky to grow up with not being aware of any of that. Funny, I was I was telling a joke recently to a friend. Like, if aliens came down and just observed, uh, you know, America, they would look at the college system as just where they organize rich and poor and races. Yes. <laughs> it's no. like really sad, but it's like, oh, that's where people get sorted out. <laughs> no, it's true. And a lot of the guys I played ball with who were you know, lived in the projects. And a lot of those guys were talented and smart and they wound up delivering groceries. Yeah, it's, it's, it's you know, so, so um, anyway, to not to get too off track with that. So um, I grew up, you know, I was, I was telling Sophia and came from a, a, a difficult home situation where uh, I was basically left on my own from the age of about nine. I didn't really have any parental guidance after that. My mother died that year, she died. She committed suicide when I was nine. Oh. And my father had MS. So he was he was depressed and wound up in a wheelchair. Mm. So really what, what that did was uh, I had to kind of create my own sense of peace in the world. Home was not a place of soup cooking and uh, pies being baked. Mm. It was a place that I more or less wanted to escape from. Mm. So uh, I was telling Sophia earlier that the the streets and the parks of my neighborhood became really the place I felt most at ease. Okay. And walking around, I, I was a bit of a loner as a kid. So walking around those streets um, imbued me with a sense of mystery and potential and even safety at times mm. that I didn't get at home. Mm. So that's even really- more on the streets. Mm -hmm. so, so that's really, I think, part of the core of why I paint what I paint. And, you know, interestingly, I, I always feel that um, we as artists um, develop a, a deep emotional response to something very early in life. And we spend all those years of study and technical refinement um, trying to recapture that initial feeling that was so compelling to us. Hmm. And so in a way, all the study, all the technique is, is put at the service of trying to recapture those feelings from childhood. 
Mm. Or just to get something that was, you know, in your head to begin with, but you didn't have the skills to express. You know, you're totally right. Like that, I, I never for like I never formulated that that way. But I remember looking at someone painting something very, very tiny, like when I was maybe four or five. Mm -hmm. Like you know, and I'm not I'm not even sure if these girls were any good, but they were painting tiny ships in the schoolyard, and I was like, I want to do that. Like, I want to know how to do it. The, mm -hmm. And, you know, this is the, when I was barely good, you know, I could barely hold a pencil. And I've probably spent all these years, you know, studying to paint miniatures. But, like, in a way, it's kind of to do what I wanted to do it for. The, well, the, yeah, it's, you know, slowly over the years, um, when you, I was an artist, sounds similar to you, who knew what I wanted to paint and the feeling I was trying to paint very early. And it was a matter, can I ever gain the skill and the insight and the sensitivity to, to put it on paper? Hmm. So, uh, and really it was, um, I was lucky enough, all my friends, when, when I was 18, nobody was going to Europe. Everybody was doing road trips west. Right. That, was, that was pre the semester abroad. So I wanted to be the esthete. I wanted to be the refined <laughs> young youngster. So I went to Amsterdam when okay. I was 18 and was my first experience after a nice fat bowl of hash, <laughs> heading, heading into the Rijksmuseum. And it was a really unique experience in my life because the paintings on the wall were the streets you walked into, the cityscapes mm. of the 17th century Dutch, mm were I never experienced that where in the museum you see these streets and then you walk out into those same streets. So it was alive for me. I felt Dutch art, um, and it looks like from your work, Marshall, that you must appreciate Dutch painting too. Oh yeah, for sure. And yeah. it, so it was, it was the combination of the, the technical beauty, sensitivity to light, and the accessibility. Mm -hmm. Dutch painting never talks down to you. Dutch right. painting is inclusive, not exclusive. Hmm. And that was a profound thing for me. So uh, that was what made me aspire to try and become a professional painter now. Hmm. Wow. So that was when you were 18, you decided yeah. that. Hmm. Before that, I was cartooning, you know, um, uh, not doing serious work. I, I got pretty good with Thor and Spider-Man. Okay. But, you know, which is the root. I'm sure you drew cartoons when you were younger, right? I did, yeah. yeah. And, yeah, a lot out of my head and cartoons just sort of explode. Yeah, put me in a corner with a rapidograph, you know. <laughs> yeah. um, so, so then that was, that was the, the beginning. And, and my attitude was always when I was 19 years old and I had made the decision to become a professional artist, I said to myself, um, by the time I'm 40, I want to be doing really good work and be showing in a really good gallery. And I gave myself this window of 20 years to develop myself. And I, I said, I'll drive cabs, I'll wait tables, whatever I have to do. But that was my cutoff because I thought I'd still be young enough at that point if I really was a bomb to change <laughs> careers. Mm -hmm. So think of the, the gift I gave myself by just wow. saying, 
I've got two decades to get it together. You know, that's very that's pragmatic amazing. because I feel like mm-hmm. I gave myself like two years out of grad school and then two years out of grad school passed. And I was like, oh, wait, uh, like what career? <laughs> if, if anything, I'm actually doing worse than I was. And now I have school, you know, grad school loans too. <laughs> that is such a realistic timeline. Yeah, 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 20 years. Hey, oh, yeah. listen, yeah. none yeah, of the kids I'm, who I'm, study I'm, with me now want to hear that. I'm actually really impressed by like, you know, it, it is a gift, right? If you think about it that way, if you think, uh, I've got 20 years to be able to do this really well. I feel like it takes the pressure of like, I've got to become an art star before, you know, 28 or else it's all the, uh, but, 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 you, you know, you guys, I mean, you guys both did school, grad school, et cetera. Like what were, you know, what, what was your plan? <laughs> I had no plan. I still don't like that's, it's interesting to even hear 20 years. I'm just like, I'm just sort of one day at a time. Like, <laughs> Hey, listen, I'm, I'm 65 years old and it's month to month, man. Yeah, it's still month to month. It's 20 years and I'm like, that makes sense. That, that's, that seems like we're, that's my trajectory. Maybe 30. I should give myself 30. Well, you know what? But what, what happened to me, what was really fortunate is after my second year of Pratt, it was my first year of Pratt that I did my first watercolors. My second year, my thesis show was my first series of watercolors. And my professors looked at them and they said, where the fuck did you learn to do this? Mm. They were they were astounded that mm. I had a natural. My work just was completely different once I started using watercolor and How doing. How did you find that though? I just I was living in Brooklyn. I was living on like Fourth Avenue in Brooklyn, which was sketchy, but it had a lot of beautiful, rundown old cement factories and old public baths, mm. and I loved all that. I loved the the benign neglect, as they yeah. they call it. Oh, you know, when I neglect. yeah, when they clean stuff up, it just loses their soul. So I had plenty to paint in Brooklyn mm. at that point. So you would carry around watercolors because it was easy to set up, and and you would sketch, and then I I did for the first um, till I was in my mid thirties. I never used photographs. I never I did everything sketching outside, and then out of my head, mm-hmm. and then I realized the limitations of doing that. Um, and what I, were those for you? Those, those the limitations issues. were that I, I I wanted to get more. I wanted to get larger. Uh-huh. I got ambitious. I, I what happened really was in when I turned forty. I had had. I was lucky in that right out of graduate school, I got into a very good gallery, and had a show right away. Mm-hmm. And by the time I was in in my early thirties, I had already had three or four shows that had sold well. My prices were very low, but that completely reaffirmed for me that this is what I'm doing. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And that was at a time, that was 1979, when the new, the, the smart new realists had just come out. And you're talking Chuck Close and Braxtraw Downs and mm. other artists, David Hockney and uh, Gabriel Latterman, William Bailey out of Yale, um, that, that whole... And they were getting a lot of press and they were considered the, even though who's the watercolorist uh, guy did the Philip Perlstein. Yeah. So, so they kind of made those possibilities seem realistic, no pun intended. Mm-hmm. Um, they, and they were called the smart realists. They were people who were very, had high, high levels of intelligence who, who were using traditional techniques, but with a modern viewpoint. 
That's so interesting. I've never heard that term smart realist. I yeah. love that. Well, I'm not sure the term exists, but that kind of describes like, you know, like smart, like, smart as in being able to maneuver in like the 20th, 20th century art yeah. world where realism was, was kind of frowned on. Well, speaking of like Perlstein, he and Alice Neal both, from what I hear, would sort of hang out with de Kooning and those people. So it's yeah. like an overlap with that real intelligentsia too in the figurative yeah. community. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. I like that term, smart realist. That's what we are. <laughs> well, that's what we, that's certainly what I we're trying know. to be. I, 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 for the rest, that's what you guys might be. I'm a dumb realist. <laughs> no, listen, Dina, Dina, you know, the, the questions you're asking me, I, I have told Dina I'd like to direct towards her where, how has she become the master of these little tiny worlds? And what, what prompted her to develop them? What about who she is? And where she comes from made her create these these little planets for herself. They're really they're very interesting, very compelling. Uh huh. Yeah, for sure. Um, thank you. He's he's trying to deflect the conversation. <laughs> I, I've seen that trick. We had a guest that did that. And, yeah, we and, fall and, for that one. Yeah, yeah, and I fall for it. Yeah, and then like 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 forty minutes later, I'm like, oh, and then when I was eleven and a half, you know. <laughs> uh, I do, no, 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 I, we're here to talk about you. I do have a question that is on topic, seems a little off topic, because I'm fascinated with. New York City in the 60s. Mm -hmm. Would you, so in 1965, how, how old 11. were you? So you were a little younger than then. But okay, I do have so one you, great, uh, you said a story. Okay. My students, everything I've done, every show I've ever had pales in its, in its reaction as when I tell my students that I smoked a joint with Jimi Hendrix in Central Park when I was 14. <laughs> nice. I, I was at Bethesda Fountain playing Frisbee, hair halfway down my back, and Jimi Hendrix comes walking along. He says, hey, baby, what's happening? Everything beautiful. And I said, hey, Jimmy, you want to smoke a J? <laughs> and, and he said, Let, let's go, baby. I'm here. And I, I actually so have corroboration. Great. A friend of mine was, uh, was there with me. Who's, my God. Well, I've also heard rumor that he would hang out in front of the yes. Students League and pick yes. up bottles. Yes. That's hilarious. So Two and three at a time. <laughs> oh, it's Jimi Hendrix. <laughs> I mean, he was Jimi Hendrix. <laughs> oh, my God. By the way, at the league, this is a little off topic, too, but there was a, a model at the league who had long dyed black hair because she was already probably in her 70s then when I was in my 20s. And she wore like Egyptian mascara okay. and she must have been beautiful. You could tell by her bone structure that she had been a really beautiful woman. Mm -hmm. She, this was when the league was a really bohemian place. She had a cot set up in the basement of the league that they, and uh, like a, a, a locker that they let her live there. Whoa. So she would wander the halls at night in a bathrobe. <laughs> and she was famous for one thing. When she was 18, Matisse had painted her. Matisse. Wow. She had been Matisse's model. No way. And she and coined that living... for the rest of her life. Wow. And yeah. And now she's living, oh, I, I don't know. At 70, you're living in a basement in, in the Art Students League. I mean, unless she wanted to. Hey, you could think of worse. That basement's huge. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, okay, okay, well do, okay, does the League have a shower? Where would she shower? 
No shower, no shower at the league, right? There's probably a hose mm-hmm. you could get around. Yeah, I, you know, she must have gotten around it somehow. Maybe she was, but she was a legend at the league back then. The league would not let somebody like, like, live like in a space. Had, had like you we, ever drawn her? I'm sorry? Had you ever drawn her? No, I never I never drew her, but I, I'm not even sure of her name. Okay. Uh, I was a, in the printmaking at that that's point. That's kind of amazing. It's like Matisse's go, you know, the ghost of one of Matisse's paintings wandering around in a bathrobe at night. <laughs> I mean, the legend was that not only was she his model, but... Well, I mean... <laughs> the history of the league is was Matisse. I've it's such a great place. Step foot in there. I still it's the best. I'm yet to get inside. Where, who did you study with at the league then? You know, I studied with uh, when I was 16. I took illustration with Earl Mayen, who you, I'm sure you never heard of. I don't know. I haven't. And uh, then you know the printmaker Siong Moy. Wow, but he was the, he was in charge of printmaking okay. when I was there in my 20s, and in between college and Pratt, I spent a year in the printmaking department there. But Siang Moy was great because he was a master chef. And I mean, we didn't have two nickels to put together. So every Friday night was a night class. He brought in a wok and we all bought like like vegetables and chicken and like a a jug of Almondan wine. And we'd stay there till one or two in the morning, like eating and drinking. What makes the league unique is that it's the only place in the city where each atelier is completely independent in terms of what they teach, the style they teach in. There's no uh, orthodoxy to the league. There's no one approach, which really is the core of of its greatness. Uh, And, and, you know, where else can you flip through the catalog and and pick uh, an artist who has an affinity to your interests the way you can at the league? Yeah, which I think is great for... Because I, I, I primarily learned at the league mm-hmm. and it was great for me because I was self-motivated and I knew what I wanted. But then other people have said, you know, they get confused. They don't know where to go. And you, you got to like, you got to make your education there. But if you do, it's the best education you've ever got. It is. And, and you know, being, I'm sorry, you want to interject? I just wanted to say, you said that you were learning printmaking. And you were learning like a lot of different mediums when you were at the league. Is that true? Yes. Okay. That's yeah. because the league is set up so that you can try different classes. I don't know. Well, you know, yeah. I, historically, Michael Rips, the director there, was asking me um, a, a little about my knowledge of the more recent history of the league. And I said, from what I can ascertain, probably after World War II, there were a lot of vets who went to the league on the GI Bill. And what happened then was at that point, so you're talking 1945, 1948 in, in the city, realism, you couldn't make a school function as a realistic atelier, mm-hmm. which the league had been previously. Mm-hmm. So that was, I think, the start of because abstract expressionism was the dominant art form coming out of World War II, and American art was suddenly he, the king of the world, right? Yeah. Not just the economy that uh, the league had to open up its doors to a variety of styles mm-hmm. to attract the students, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that's the core of when that when that mentoring system really started. I mean, it always had the mentoring system, but mm-hmm. that's when the diverging styles, I think, really became a, a feature of the school. And I think it gained a lot of power in that because me as a student, I was all just academic realism. Right. I took all those classes, but 
Boy, was it great to like listen to a lecture by Frank O'Kane or sneak exactly. into class or something. Yeah. It's like you just get your mind blown on so many levels there. Yeah. yeah. And and if you're, as you said you were, or like I know Dina was or myself, um, I, again, always knew what I wanted to paint from that first trip to Amsterdam. Mm-hmm. So it was a matter of can I get the the level of skill and sensitivity to light and mastery of materials up high enough to be able to uh, externalize what I wanted to paint. You right. know, was there anyone teaching that kind of thing? So, so I've never like seen anyone use watercolor quite the way you do. Was there anyone teaching you, or were you? Just I never had a watercolor lesson in my life. That's crazy to me. Well, yeah, no, but actually the best watercolorist I know um, never studied under a watercolorist. They figured it out independently. Did you, Why do you, did think you play that with this? Because like oil painters, there's this leaning, like I studied with this guy, he studied with that guy. Now you're studying with them. What What is the... It's it's that, uh, you know, um, I I think watercolor, I did not like, I was attracted to Dutch painting. And then from Dutch painting, I went to early English watercolors for technique. Went to people like Turner and Girton, Bonington, Cotman. And, you know, that was that was really, they invented watercolor as an expressive medium. And mm-hmm. nobody has ever done it better. Mm-hmm. And they're still, the, I, I think, by far the greatest masters of the medium. Oh, wow. And okay. so the more recent watercolor, watercolor always suffered from a slight amateur or dilettante reputation Mm -hmm. there weren't a lot of major artists who made it their primary medium Mm -hmm. so uh it lent itself to the kind of big wet and wet flower painting yes that came to dominate shop kind of yeah and so so um i'm I'm always heartened when i see somebody I, i think is profoundly talented or accomplished who's using watercolor we just had mario robinson on this show Mm -hmm. i don't think he studied with anyone for watercolor either right he just kind of he just sort of came on it too yeah yeah i mean he said he he had he also attended pratt i I wonder if if he had to take an oil painting class did you have to take any oil painting i oil painted for years uh but i haven't done an oil painting since 1979 (laughs) That's why you're so healthy. <laughs> <laughs> That's why my, my cuticles aren't destroyed. I basically eat lead, light, mm. and turpentine. <laughs> and also, I mean, that's, you know, etching. Think of it, 40 years of etching would have. Yeah, etching's rough, too. Mm-hmm. Hello, uh, we're back from the break. We are here with Mr. Frederick Brosen, Dina, and Marshall. And uh, let's start with yours, Marshall. Well, my question has to do with um, uh, you, you paint in a really tight way, and mm-hmm. some might say literal. What what would you say to that? Well, I I would say that there's a lot more people who study with me come to see more and more how I subtly um, divert the images I paint from from their literal origins. I, I do, I change almost everything slightly, okay. which means perspective, which okay. means I take out buildings. I, I generally, even though my work looks very detailed, right? right. I generally <clears throat> um, edit. And that means I remove things I'm not interested in. Anything I feel is superfluous to the mood of the piece, okay. which means trucks, 
most of the figures. I've noticed uh, a lot. Signs, um, you know, advertisements. uh, I, I really, if you look at my pieces, if there are, when I take photographs outside, because even though I did years of drawing outside, now I'm, I consider myself a studio artist. I mean, my big paintings particularly are all produced from a board of photographs, okay. not never literally from one. Okay. There's a, uh, it's a combination of maybe, it could be as many as 100, it could be as few as 10, <clears throat> but I assemble details from each one. Okay. And then I pick a time of day and a light that it'll usually be based on one. So there might be a photograph where the time of day hits it. There might be another photograph where I like this truck, another photograph where um, I like this sign, the way it's lit up. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'll cherry pick. Okay. And so then the the final result is a distillation of what I think are the most salient aspects of the scene. Mm-hmm. But um, all of it in in contributing to what I think was the initial mood that, that moved me to want to paint it. Because again, um, I spend up to three months on a painting. Okay. So I better I better be engaged. You better be engaged. Right. I've I've it, would it be fair to say that your your paintings they, they seem at the same time kind of poignant and even almost like haunting in a way like memories do you do you feel like that is part of your editing process New York, i don't think of his work as literal at all um it's just you know it's tight uh it's, um but the but there's a difference uh, uh if new york never really looks that way like you know it's it's never really like like new york is never really that well composed i guess uh, uh-huh. uh because it's swamped by like people and trash bags and you know the like like and like a zillion things happening all the time right and new New york is a a a distracted city and what i try and get is some sort of centered mood of a place okay like a singular kind of but having said that um i also look for things that provide a sense of continuity not nostalgia i'm not interested really in purely a nostalgic new york okay i'm interested in a new york that lives on that uh, that mm. never like that's a not timelessness. I'm sorry. Like a timelessness. A timelessness. Yeah. You know, I I recently wrote a little essay called um, the Forever Street, and what I meant by that was trying to capture, like, if I have to say, the greatest. I have a favorite painting okay. in the world, and it's Vermeer's View of Delft. Oh yeah. That's, I think yeah. that painting, in an age of great cityscape painting. He only produced two, The Little Street and The View of Delft. Mm-hmm. And they both took painting to a completely different place than all of the contemporary, as great as they were, the Jan van der Heydens, the Burkheide brothers, San Redam et al. Um, Vermeer takes you, that, that painting is still uh, the holy grail for me hmm. of what the possibilities of landscape painting and cityscape painting can be. Every time I've gone to Holland since I was 18, I go to the Moritz house in The Hague and I stand in front of that painting. So when I was, I guess, almost exactly the same age as you were when you were in Amsterdam for the first time at 18, um, I lived there for a while. And then I bicycled down from, I mean, I guess I was trying to make it to Paris. I, I was trying to make it to Spain on a bike, but that's, you know, the, uh, in any case, um, uh, to the Moritz house. And I saw the paintings. And then like a day or two later, I, I ended up on my little bike in Delft. And it's exactly like that view didn't mm-hmm. change by, I mean, it's exactly oh, wow. the same, the view of Delft. And 
and you can find the little street and that also looks exactly the same. Mm. And I mean, it's the rest of Delft is like souvenir shops and, you know, make, make little, little blue tiles. Uh, but like, but, but like, like he got that painting is, it's still there. Like, like the, the real version is still well, there. You know, when you stand in front of the view of Delft, it's, it's, um, it's a magical experience for me because if I feel like Johan is taking me by the hand and saying, I want you to know what, what it felt like to be alive on this bank in front of this, this river in Delft in 1666. Mm. I mm. want you to smell the air. I want you to feel the clouds move. Mm. And it's a visceral experience and it's transcendent. And it's what great art is. A, great art is so important now. And the reason it is, is because great art is a unifier. Great art teaches us what we share. It, it, uh, unlike the political times we're in, mm -hmm. where divisiveness is what we're learning, right? Great art shows us what we have in common. Mm -hmm. The spirit, sense of beauty. Beauty is really important in our lives, mm -hmm. and especially now. So I tell my students, Go look at great painting and, and it'll make you feel part of something larger than yourself. Hmm. And that's why that's why great art great art only lives if we're moved by it. Who do you who do you feel is doing great art now? Wow, that's a that's a really <laughs> I, a well, first one. of all, I I can't be sure because part of the test so obviously yeah, instant classics aren't really in my vocabulary. Uh -huh. But so God, great art right now. Um well, I guess you could say Antonio Lopez Garcia yeah. might be way up there. Um, he does also those, like some of his views of Madrid took him 10 years to paint. Yeah. And they have a, really a profound quality of that distillation of time compressed. Absolutely. In them. Uh, Israel Hirschberg did a series of tree paintings. Mm. that um, I think are, are so good. I think are among the best tree paintings I've ever seen. And I've looked at a lot of them. I've looked at Friedrich and, and Ashaby Durand and, and those Hirschbergs stay with. The art that I think is great is the art that, that I think about long after I've seen the paintings. Mm. They make my wheels turn. Mm. There's a, as you must know, there's so many ateliers out there now. Mm -hmm. And artists, artists are, are finding other means to make a living now. The gallery situation is much different than it used to be. Yep. And very good artists are opening ateliers. And I see on, on Instagram, for instance, many really competent figure drawings. Yeah. But how many of them make an imprint in my memory? Almost none. It's those none. are that, the, the things, but there'll be certain artists. So... Great art. I I don't I can tell you what moves me the most, but whether or not it's going to be considered great art. But do you, well, we 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 tend to go to this conversation a lot. Like, and, is there? Yeah, it's room really interesting that you are bringing for, this up on your own. <laughs> for like, I don't like oversaturation of images. You know, would would mm -hmm. Vermeer just sort of get lost on an Instagram feed today? Yeah. Yes. You know? How many likes would Vermeer get? Not many. <laughs> I mean, it's a weird, it's a weird concept, but probably it, it was pro, you know, everything it's zeitgeist, it's time and place. And I feel like everything's so disposed. Like I just sort of know, I was talking about it recently. Like you can name a few artists on 
Instagram and you can't name a single aspect of any of their paintings. You can just call, you know, oh, he paints the this or they paint the that. You don't really right. remember them, you know? So funny. I, don't, I don't know, but there's like a, do you guys know Zoe Frank's work? Yes. Uh-huh. And she, like she was like kind of atelier trained and like did very, very like lovely academic nudes. And then she just totally reinvents herself every like, I don't know, it seems like every year <laughs> where what she's doing right now is way, way different than what she was doing two years ago. And that was way different than four years ago. She's and if brilliant. You, yeah. And it feels like she's just like playing in like the best possible way. Mm-hmm. I'm like, you know, like, like, so I loved her work when it was just an academic nude. And then two years later, I was like, oh, wow. Like she got like really good at doing this totally different thing. And mm-hmm. then I saw her work recently. And I was like, oh, she's even better. And it looks nothing like the painter she was. So mm. it, but the one thing that kind of the one thread it's got in common, she's always good. Whatever she's doing, she's really, really, but really good really at it. she's really embraced the contemporary dialogue. Like, they, they look like you did not need atelier training for that. And I what is know, the no, contemporary dialogue? What does that yeah, mean? That you that you paint in the face of just absurdity, super compressed. That there's no reason to paint and we find it anyway? That's what Josh was saying. What did he say? He say said there's, in a, in a time period where there's there's so many reasons not to make art. Because it's like it's just like something people consume and they throw it away so so instantaneously. I, but to make art in any way, that's the purpose of the artist right now. That's the contemporary conversation. I don't know bullshit. I feel like there's as much reason to make art as there ever was. If anything, if anything, it's a better time to be an artist than ever. What do you think, Frederick? Yeah. Uh, no, I think I think um, it's it's a great time to be an artist for a number of reasons and. One of them is that, um, you know, loving, building these little little worlds for yourself, having a place to go now. You know, I always view an artist studio is, is a sanctuary. Right. You know, and it's where you can go to, to really um, it, maintain your integrity, your authenticity. Life is so inauthentic now. And the problem I have is, you know, I... I I grew up feeling like if you had a genuine, deep emotional feeling about something and you gained the skills to present it, to to externalize it, if you got it up to a certain level, the work would find its own market. You didn't have Mm -hmm. to paint for a market. The market would come to you if you were truly, truly excellent. The work would make its own market. And mm-hmm. that's, I operated on that belief mm-hmm. that it was just a matter of becoming truly exceptional. Mm-hmm. That, that, you know, to, and, and distinguishing yourself that way. And the market would then find you. Mm-hmm. But Jeff Koons has made fools of, <laughs> of that concept. <laughs> I mean, and you know what Jeff Koons it's- collects? Old, oh, master old masters, paintings, yep. really? 17th century what? paintings. Absolutely. What, what, a, what an asshole. Sorry. <laughs> but it does, <laughs> yeah, just, to that point, no, it, does, it does seem like it transcends Coons. It does seem like culture where we're living right now has sort of made a mockery of that statement, whether it's what Hollywood's churning out or what. Justin Bieber singing or Jeff Koons is it's it's you know, just Marshall we've never we've never agreed on this but like is, is there is uh, okay so is, is you know all of the stuff you're talking about is true he said it I didn't say it no, he said it you said it having said that having said that like right now I'll tell you I I was a very well-selling artist for many years not selling that well now my big paintings are more expensive the trends have changed. They ain't flying off the wall now. If 
for and for none of my friends either. Mm -hmm. So uh -huh. so it's a time when you kind of then two things uh, you get back to painting for yourself mm. instead of towards oh I have to have this many done for the show. You, uh -huh. you do, you concentrate on images because your best work is always your most authentic work, right? The, yep. the work you most feel most deeply about. And the second thing is it encourages artists when, when artists were all selling better, which was up through beginning of the aughts, um, they tended to be more selfish and more self-contained, not share information. Right. Um, be more careerist. Mm. And right now we're kind of all in the same pit together. Mm -hmm. And I find now is a great time for the, the spirit of a fraternity of artists to reemerge. Yes. And that's something that I always wanted to believe existed. Yeah. That's why we have the Hell Art Grind yeah. podcast, baby. That's what it's all yeah. about. Find, like, you know, it, I was going to say Instagram. I was talking to Dina before. Um, I don't think I'll ever sell a painting through Instagram. I'm, I'm not convinced I ever will, but I have found artists, Dean is one of them. Um, a guy named Matteo Massagrande is another who, uh, who does interiors. Matteo Massagrande does interiors that remind me of my work, except it, inside it, instead yeah, of outside. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say if you're... <laughs> um, that, or his, or his yeah, he does what in, with interiors. He has the same kind of haunted, melancholy, isolated spirit okay. in his interiors. Um, and he, interestingly, uh, not to go too off, off, off subject, but he, he grew up um, in Puglia, and he had an aunt who lived in an abandoned villa where... Uh, 80% of the villa was closed off. She lived in a small section of it. Mm. And he, as a child, explored the abandoned rooms mm. with the, the sheets over the furniture and the, the light sifting through the dust in the empty rooms. And that's what he paints. Mm. And so I felt a kinship with his work because that's what I found in the streets mm -hmm. was, was that same kind of transcendence that he found in his aunt's old villa. So... Um, you know, I would have never known his work. He shows, I think, in London. Showed at a gallery you had a show. He shows at Pantone, yeah. Mm -hmm. yes. And and I would have never seen his work between Puglia and London, un unless I had seen it on Instagram. Mm -hmm. That so, is a beautiful thing about Instagram. Yeah, isn't it that I found there are more good contemporary artists than I thought. There's a ton. I yeah, know for sure. Which, but I, I ignorance was my bliss. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't realize how many excellent painters were working. Mm-hmm. I, I think that leads us to this next question um, about the difference between what let's talk about vocabulary definitions. Difference between perfection, mastery for you. What does that mean? And do you, have you attained that in, in any way? What does that mean to you? I think is there any is there any like painting that? ever done where you could say um, I mean. Perfection is a, like a, a standard of, of beauty that um, is subjective. So mm. is there any great painting or great sculpture? I guess there must be, but that the artist who made them would actually say, there is nothing I could have done that could have made this work better. Um, Do you think anybody, you think Bernini, when he did Apollo and Daphne, looked at it and said, man, you know, th um, there's not, there's not a chip. 
You know what, Bernini probably didn't, but I bet Damien Hirst looks at those dot paintings. <laughs> Man, that is a well, perfect dot. He, he just does. He just doesn't know enough. <laughs> you know, so perfection is one thing that I think is is unattainable and it's subjective. Mastery is something that I think we're always uh, striving for. Um, I don't think about perfection. I think about getting closest to that particular painting's uh, sense of mood. And, you know, there, I had a collector, actually, I, I was showing at Forum Gallery and next door, um, I forget the, McKee, I think with the gallery and a guy named uh, a, a minimalist painter. He was very well known, Harvey. I can't remember his last name, but he was walking out of Forum when I was going in. And he smoked a pipe and had thick glasses on. And he's shaking his head as he's leaving the gallery. And I said to him, Harvey, I'm surprised you went to see my show. And he looks at me and he shakes his head. He says, every fucking brick. He says, that, that cathedral you painted? You painted every fucking brick. And he just keeps walking. <laughs> and after that, I told a collector of mine about it, and he dubbed me the EFB school of painting. <laughs> the every fucking brick painting. <laughs> uh, so, uh, but, but uh, so, you know, the, the mastery, um, you're a master if you can get as, if you, what you visualize, first of all, every painting you visualize in your head, that initial flash, you, the work never looks like that initial flash. It can be close or way off or better mm -hmm. or worse, but it's never, the process changes mm -hmm. everything. So um, so you never paint what you have in your head. I mean, if, if you could do that, um, maybe you wouldn't even need to paint. I mean, I don't know. Uh, but so you're always, you're always skirting around what you're looking for. Mm -hmm. You're always working towards that thing, and it's hard to define what it really is. is you just a know. Comfortable with what what they end up getting. Um, you know, uh, sometimes sometimes I'm I'm delighted by what I did. My wife always jokes because every time I finish a painting, I say, "I just finished the best painting I ever did." You know, <laughs> I'm I'm very much like that until I look at it six months later <laughs> and realize I was. My judgment was way, way off. Um, so, uh, so mastery is something um, I'm proud that I have a certain level of. Um, I because you know when you have those chops, I mean you earn those chops. They're yours. When I played basketball in uh, you know street ball and I played in in summer tournaments, um, if you had game, game was a possession. Game was a thing you owned. It's something you earned. Huh. And it was respect. And you walked onto the court, and the best thing you could hear when you went onto the court was, "Yo, you see that guy? He's got game." Uh -huh. That was that. Nothing sounded better than that. Yeah. And yeah. the same thing. I always say, even if people don't like my style, don't appreciate the emotion behind the work, they have to recognize the mastery of how it's painted. Right. And that's so. I I demand respect if not affection right mm. huh it's beautiful thank you yeah that's great i have a quote if this gets like too too personal let me know but this is something i'm always fascinated with you kind of talked about looking back six months on a painting you know 
do you, how hard are you on yourself after something's gone? Are you just like, cause me, I, I don't feel I've ever finished anything. It just feels like if it was still on the wall and I got to paint on it, it would be better Wednesday than it was Tuesday. And when does that ever stop? But do you, you know? do a day guy on it? Will you just keep reworking things? I you rework know? them like crazy. Oh, yeah. You oil, oil painters. You oil painters. You know. You know, this very famous story. Degas sold a painting to somebody in Paris. And the, the, the couple was doing like a grand tour. They went down to Italy. They they were traveling for six months. They came back. Degas says, here's your painting. And he had slowly worked this section, that section. In this section, it was a completely different. They said that's not our painting, uh, and they had a big yeah. argument. He oh, repainted yeah. the entire thing piece by piece over that that six months time, and, and someone already anymore. loved it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh God. But I think that th there's something to personality in that. Like, I just had all my paintings out for this show, and I was sort of like proud for a second, you know. Mm -hmm. And my girlfriend was here, and she's like, "I'm really happy for you. you finally, seem proud of something, you know." And it lasted like two seconds. And then it's like, I wanted to change everything. You know what I'm saying? Like, well, you know, but, but <laughs> I've always found having a show, um, one of the most important aspects of it is going alone a couple of times and really spending an hour with your work and trying to find the things that you want to jettison that mm -hmm. are holding you back, that aren't working, and the things that are working, that are emerging in the work and carrying it forward. Mm, and so such great advice. I, I view a show as, a, as an opportunity for some very good self-criticism and editing wow. as you plan forward. So, and that's a skill you develop, you try uh -huh. to. So I painted, you know, I painted a lot of lousy paintings. One of my, one of my problems is that I was showing very early. I wasn't, the first shows I had work was terrible. Hmm. Um, and they sold, they sold for cheap. So now there are hundreds of these paintings I did early that are in collections and, and private collections, and they're going to wind up coming out sooner or later. Um, and in some ways, I, I would have been discouraged, but I would have maybe been a better painter had I not had those early opportunities because, you know, that made me feel like I was already good. When I really wasn't that good. Yeah, but you know what? It also, it also. Um, I mean, I guess I also had, like I had a similar experience where I sold a lot of paintings that were probably not that great for very cheap. What it what it also does though, um, is it ma makes you feel like it's possible to make a living doing this crazy yes. impractical yes. thing, and I feel like that that's priceless. Like the, um, the, in a way that like had you like waited ten years while I I, I don't even know bartending and making your work at night or whenever you weren't bartending, um, like you wouldn't have had that. Yeah, well, listen, there was a choice when you get out of graduate school. We all come to that juncture, uh, at least when I was in graduate school. A lot of my, uh, my, my fellow students took teaching jobs in universities in the Midwest, mm -hmm. and they moved, and I, I honestly, I've never heard of any of them. I mean, because mm. I think they got you know, they were the big dog in the small pond and they yeah. got the tenure and the, all the things that I would like now, like a pension and, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, health insurance, faculty housing, mm. but the work was never pushed. Being in New York does, I find, you know, you still, still, you see 
the best work available anywhere you see here and it spurs you to excellence. And you're in the same room with these people all the time. Yeah. Um, and also and you get to, you even get to know them. You even get yeah. to see how they work. If, you know, and that's exactly. a, that's, that really is a it's priceless, priceless thing, right? The possibilities um, that you're exposed but, to. But also like it's, it's being around the people whose work you really, you know, love where you're like, oh my God, this person will even talk to me. But it's also, there's so many kind of weird, cool, crazy opportunities here mm -hmm. to, to make a living here that I don't think have, like, like there's almost like cracks in like the, 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 the nature of reality here where you can like slip matrix. through that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, like, like slip through this where, you know, the, uh, like slip Slip through this, live in a strange place, not pay much rent. I don't know, work an odd job. Because you know um, somebody who knows somebody. Yes, who yeah. knows somebody. Um, exactly. And, and I'm I, so I'm going to be leaving New York in a month. And I'm not sure that's going to happen anywhere else. Uh, I, 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 yeah, there's a part of me that likes to flip that quote. That old quote that was like, if you can make it in New York, you can make it anywhere. And sometimes for artists, it seems like the only place you can make yeah, it yeah. is in yeah, New York. Well, although, you know, many of my friends now um, are not looking as much to uh, a major New York gallery uh, uh -huh. to make their reputation as they're, because that the, unless you're with really a Pace or a Gagosian or something like that, that's not really this, you know, when I first got into Forum, I was 40 years old and my friends all called me and they said, now you just stay home and paint, Rick. You're there. You're blue chip, you know? And I wanted to believe it. Um, mm -hmm. And it was a very seductive fantasy to have, mm -hmm. that you have a mommy and daddy gallery, and you just stay and immerse yourself in your creative life, and other things are taken care of. That's not happening now. Not for most yeah. people I know. Yeah. It's well, and not, a for, not, not for anyone a forum anymore. Um, and the problem with those Gagosians and stuff, it's not really available to people whose work is like ours, really, you know? Exactly. And I, I will say, uh, you were asking me about masters before. Mm. I was happy to see, I went to the Walton Ford show. Mm. Oh, yeah. And yeah. I like to see a guy doing 10 foot watercolors, uh -huh. a guy or a girl. Um, and a friend of mine was with me and says, you know, Rick, how much do you think these go for? <laughs> and I said, well, judging by the size, the time it takes, show only has six paintings in it or something, maybe 400,000. I don't know. I, you know, I was just picking a figure. They came back to me and said, you better up that figure. Oh, wow. The show was sold out for $2 million each. Wow. And I... I couldn't even look at the work anymore. All I saw were dollar signs mm -hmm. after that. I mean, that's, I don't, I don't know how that happens. How does one artist get the, the mechanisms behind getting to that level where people are paying? Um, people are be, I, I mean, it's a tangent, but people basically gamble, like, you know, like the gallery gambles on the artist. Like that, that they'll be able to kind of like 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 spin this artist up, and then a bunch of the you know, the, and then they get a bunch of their collectors to kind of either buy out a show or bid it up at an auction, mm -hmm. like bid it up from I don't know right. two thousand to ten, from ten to fifty, etc. But you got to turn the, the corner on it, the auction. And then the next time it goes up for auction, it starts at fifty and goes up to hundred. And uh, but but each of those Gagosian piece, etc., like they have a core group of collect. I mean, basically investors. Who are willing to? I mean, like basically, it's a stock. Market, it's a stock at that point. Well, yeah. well, again, you know, it's it's. But, it's, but, but good for Walton. But Walton Ford's good, a good very for, good stock yeah, yeah, in that yeah, yeah, world. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he, it's, it's his a, work is great. It, yeah, I mean, no, his, it, his, yeah. 
his work is extraordinary and uh -huh. it's, it's creative it's imaginative it's beautifully executed i mean it has a lot of really great ingredients it's happening great. in it right it's yeah. really beautiful and and you know um, to that point i remember his images yeah you know what i'm saying there you like, go i remember them certain yeah. images make you know and you're looking at stuff i'm scrolling unfortunately i'm scrolling through stuff a lot now which you know, the disposability of those images is a problem. It's and a problem. It, it is because they're so interchangeable. It's just like when I first was taken to big art fairs, like the mm -hmm. ADAA fair in, in, at, the, at the armory. Uh -huh. And I thought, oh, my God, I'm going to this major art fair. And I went in and there were like 4,000 paintings hanging. Yeah, And exactly. I had one little piece. <laughs> and I felt like a, a flea <laughs> instead of feeling special. Uh, I think it, I think that's a problem. I think that the, that disposability is rough and it causes artists to really want to brand themselves yeah. as the painter of the, this or the painter of the, that. And so you, so you just get in through a back door in people's heads. And I, I don't know. I don't love that. I like, I like exploring. I like changing, you know, and, and, and you want to do the images that, um, you know, you don't want to paint again, what we, I was saying earlier, you don't want to paint for the market. You don't, you're, you, it destroys your work mm -hmm. uh, from my perspective and possibly your soul. <laughs> yeah. But, well, definitely. Yeah. So, so even though the images are like, I'm, I have a show in February at Herschel and Adler coming up. Oh, I like on, that gallery. Yeah. That's a good one. And, um, the paintings I've done for it, I'm not so sure they're going to sell a lot of them. And the reason is because they're paintings I've wanted to paint for years. Mm -hmm. I said, you know, I, I have been seduced by being able to sell work at times and said, oh, this couple would like to buy this or that. And the, the recent series of paintings I've done, I haven't thought of anything except what I most want to paint. Mm, and, so beautiful. <clears throat> So that's, so I think they're really good paintings, but they're probably not that saleable. Yeah, that's what Bernardo said. He said the, there's only two types of paintings, the, the ones you can sell and the ones that no one wants. There's only, I think that's what he said. Or, or he said a, a beautiful painting or the one or the one that no, I don't know how he's phrased it. Uh -huh. And by the way, you know what else destroys your soul, Marcel? Um, having to like work a really, really stupid job and then paint at night, like during, and, like, like try to squeeze your painting time, like, like, and after that, I would rather not like there's all that much of a market for my work anyway, but I like, I will, I will, I would much rather sell my soul and get to paint. I don't know that right? that's how To Kill a Mockingbird was written. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Uh, yeah, um, yeah, but imagine how many To Kill a Mockingbird were not written because, it, because someone had to. <laughs> Uh, Bukowski, you know, like 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 the um, like who's just a postal worker the like like his whole life. Uh, oh, you say it right. I would always say Bukowski. I didn't even mm -hmm. understand it how you said that. Oh, you say it I'm right. I'm saying it the Russian way. I think the American I think that's right that's, though. Yeah, yeah. So, it sounds good. <laughs> but you know, I tell an artist like Dina, right? That um, I, I think at one point you had said to me, "Should I work larger?" Or you've thought about working larger and something like that. By because larger, it might... I meant like twelve by twelve inches, oh. maybe. <laughs> but I think you've got an extraordinary gift, and it's who you are, and you should just become the great master of the miniature. I just think 
I have no choice. Um, I, yeah, I have absolutely. to become the great master of the miniature because nothing I do over, you know, like like about, you know, about five by five inches works. It, it just falls apart. I'm not worried about Dina. Dina paints legit. She paints exactly what she wants to, yeah. how she wants yeah. to. I'm worried about people less susceptible than Dina out there. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, hey, Rick. Yes. Um, I think we're going to have to wrap it up officially we can keep okay, talking that's but, fine um i wanted can i ask one more question yeah i feel like i want to ask you about the technical aspect because you're painting with watercolor large scale and watercolor is really permanent you can't mess it up and you're, you're painting it really tight you're using photographs many photographs and watercolor is liquid. It's a fluid. How, what, can you talk us through how you think about that medium? Yeah. I, <clears throat> um, unlike some watercolors, the, the technique I use um, is actually very learnable and it's very teachable because it's, it uses a foundation of a hard graphite drawing. So the foundation of the work is I draw in 6-H graphite. Mm. The 6-H graphite acts as a grisaille underpainting. 6H mm. allows you to lay washes, transparent washes of color on top with no graying or lifting of the graphite. Yes. So it really it, it has yeah. a so, it's, so so to clarify in my head, you have a black and white image that you're painting on top of essentially. Uh, yeah, with not a lot of the light indicator, but a lot of the textural elements. Okay. And you can't see because I, I, I build up up to about 20 layers of paint over that. Wow. Um, <clears throat> but the drawing is a guide that I follow all the way through the process. Wow, that's cool. And, you know, uh, um, I, I absolutely believe that if you name the great watercolors of the past, if you looked at Turner, who's probably the goat, right? Uh-huh. And you looked at um, Bonington or Sargent or Zorn, who's a great watercolorist, what do they all share? They're great draftsmen. Draftsmen. Mm-hmm. The draftsmanship, the drawing is superb. Watercolor, because of its transparency, depends on two things. One is a, um, a, a preconception of what you want to do because you have to plan your whites. There's no opaque paint, mm-hmm. pure watercolor. Mm-hmm. So you're saying that's going to stay white, this mm-hmm. whole painting. You don't put a dark blue there. So you're, you're, you're defining from an early preconceived point in the painting how you're going to proceed. And then it's a series of designing sequences of color. So there's underpainting with big wet, wet and wet washes. Mm-hmm. Then there's local color. Then there's modeling, texturing, and then your final layer of, of either deepening the colors, the shadows, kind of bringing it all together. And they, they really, <clears throat> it's, four, it's four sequential applications over the drawing. It's wet and wet wet on dry, uh, scumbling and dry brush, and then point of brush. Mm. And no matter what you do, no matter how you paint, what's, whatever style you use in watercolor, if you're going to become a master watercolorist, you have to be able to use all four of those elements sequentially, and you use them in that order. Because mm. the big, the wet and wet is the big open wet washes that are the underpainting. They, your 6-H pencil stays intact while you're doing those oh, washes. Yeah. yeah. How and cool it's, is it's that? Like, 6-H is almost like silver point. It's like, you know, like, like, it's really like hard. it won't go anywhere yet. It's amazing. Yeah. So, but it's, a, and I've, I've got to say, I don't know anybody else who uses my technique 
it's it's the fact that I never studied with anybody. So wow. I would go to museums. I once once I knew I was going to be a watercolorist. I went to to London primarily and looked at the great watercolor collections there, and um, and based my technique on them, the early English. And they they did what I do. They they didn't even draw necessarily as much as I did, but they would always have even. Even Sargent does some sort of primary line work. In pencil. In pencil that he has to follow with the washes or else you don't know where to leave your whites. Mm -hmm. The white is the paper. Oh, my God. So it's all about the – so basically you you draw in and then it's all about painting in mid-tones. And then the last step, you're hitting your darks again and your lights were left open. Yeah, and, and How you, cool is that? if you really want to get good, the, the easy part is the details. The easy part is the surface. Right. Much harder part <clears throat> is setting up the underlying movements of warm and, and cool colors, of light. And, and that's that you do with big open washes early in the painting. And the better you get, the more you do of that. Mm -hmm. the, um, so sometimes I'll paint for almost a month on a painting before I put any local color in. Mm. I'll, I'll be just developing the entire image together with big washes of color. Wow. And then once I look at it and I say, okay, I think I've done as much as I should do on this layer, <clears throat> then I'll switch to the local colors. I'll start putting the reds and the, and the blues and the pinks where they need which, to be. Which part is the most fun for you? Like, like what, where do you, I feel like. You know what? I, I, the, drawing, the drawing is the most um, demanding in terms of a, of a conscious effort. The, the, I, I view it as a yin and yang thing. The drawing takes a lot of decision making, a lot of very conscious choices. Um, and then the painting becomes almost completely intuitive. The reward of the discipline of the drawing is the intuitive painting over it. Wow. Okay. Amazing. You know what, Frederick? Thank you so much for coming in today. I learned Thank you. This has lot. been great. Yeah, thank you. And I'm going to come to your opening. Are you really? Hey, Sophia. What? Guess what? What? People are giving us money. No way. They're literally giving us money. They're giving us money right now? Yeah. Yeah. I can hear it. Can I? <laughs> I, can, I can smell it. Can other people give us money too? I hope so. How do people give us money? Go on to artgrindpodcast.com and click the button donate with PayPal and follow the instructions. Yeah. The prompts? The prompts. Thanks again, guys. Stay safe out there. Stand clear of the closing doors, please. Beep.